I'm glad to be here. My wife is with me. I met my wife when we were very young on the campus of uh, Old Johnson Bible College in Tennessee. I, uh, I guess I took her out for a Coke or something. I walked her back to the girls' dormitory. Didn't take me long to make up my mind when she wasn't looking. I grabbed her and gave her a big kiss. She said, Ben Merrill, you had no business doing that. I said, listen, this is not business, this is pleasure. Well, uh, we are here this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you, but we are also here on business. Uh, your preacher, Brian, of course, knowing uh, we were in the, that you were in this uh, series called I Am the Church, felt that there ought to be a sermon on the Restoration Movement. Our brotherhood, all independent Christian churches, churches of Christ, are a part of what we call the Restoration Movement. A movement not to reform the church, but a movement to restore the church in its structure and plan of salvation as found in the New Testament. And so I told Brian Heinrich, the song leader, this is going to take just a little longer, but I think you will enjoy the information that is in this sermon. So turn with me to really the Gospel of John, chapter 17. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that he is going to be crucified the next day. He prays for his followers, and then he prays for everyone that would believe through the message that they started with, and that includes us. So from John chapter 17, starting with the 20th verse, these words from Jesus. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. With that in mind, let me ask you this question. If you knew that you were going to die in 24 hours, what would you say? Jesus knew that he was going to die in less than that. And as you would say important things, Jesus said important things. He prayed that his followers, down through the ages even, might have complete unity, and he prayed that for a reason. Get this. He wanted us to have unity so that through us the world might believe. Does that not imply that the world does not believe today because we do not have that unity? I think that it does. So Jesus prayed for that, and it's important. That prayer is still unanswered. I call that the only unanswered prayer that Jesus ever prayed because the answer lies with people like you and me. We're the ones that have to answer it. So as we look at this, remember that Alva Ross Brown, second president of Johnson Bible College, wrote a book that was very popular called Our Lord's Unanswered Prayer. 
And in that book, he said, our Lord didn't pray the impossible. This kind of unity is possible. And I know it's popular to say, oh, one church is as good as another. It doesn't make any difference what you believe as long as you are sincere. Hey, that's the greatest argument the devil ever came up with, and we're giving it for him. You see, Jesus prayed that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it is God's will that we have unity in heaven, then it is also God's will that we have unity here on earth. And we need to consider this seriously. The next day after praying this prayer, Jesus was crucified. He was resurrected on the first day of the week following, and 50 days after that was the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. The apostles were first ones to preach the gospel in the sense that they could preach that Jesus had died for our sins and been resurrected. And from that time on, the church was viewed as being in existence. Up until that point, the church was always future. But on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 people were baptized, and they made up the first uh, congregation of the church, we might say. And from that day on, the church is viewed as being here on earth. Now, there is a divine blueprint for the church, and there is a divine blueprint for the plan of salvation, and it is found very easily in the book of Acts. And so for the first 40 years, the apostles led the people in following that divine blueprint, and get this, the church took the gospel to the known world in 40 years. The church impacted the known world in 40 years. And then these inspired apostles died and passed on. And men came along following them who substituted their ideas. And it is always dangerous to say, I think so, when the Bible has God's no-so. So there was a departure from the pattern. And it is always a mistake to try to do right things in a wrong way. For instance, in First uh, Chronicles chapter 15, you have a story of David trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem. They went up to wherever it had been stored for some time, and they put it on a cart, and they started bringing it back to Jerusalem on a cart drawn by oxen. They crossed a thrashing floor. The Ark jolted. Uzzah put his hand against it to study it, and God struck him dead right there. That kind of ruined the day for everybody. Uh, they didn't try to take the ark any further. They just left it there. And sometime later in studying the Bible, some of the men that were priests came to David and said, here's what's wrong. Moving the ark on a cart was the way our enemies, the Philistines, sent it there when they captured it. The Bible says that the ark is to be moved by the priest of the line of Levi inserting poles in the loops that are along the side of it and carrying it on their shoulders. So they went back and tried that. They brought it into Jerusalem amidst singing and dancing and celebration. And David wrote, we sought God, but not after the due order. That's why they had all that trouble. Or you could put it this way. 
We sought God, but not in the prescribed way. Or let's paraphrase it my way. We tried to do a good thing in the wrong way. It's important that we follow God's instructions. And so first of all, we see a departure from the pattern. I think it all started when a distinction was made between elder and bishop. They were words that were synonymous for those shepherds of the church, elders or bishops. We could, uh, we could use either word for that office. But it wasn't long before a distinction was made. A bishop was viewed as one that had authority over a number of elders. And by the time that distinction was made, about 150 years after Christ, in another 50 years, they began to look upon preachers as priests. And that was a mistake because the Bible teaches, in a sense, we are all priests. It teaches the priesthood of believers. We have access to God. By the year 300 A.D., this had evolved until these priests could forgive sins. And that's never taught in the Bible. And then, since Rome was the largest city in the world and the most influential city in the world, uh, Rome began to have influence over the world, and, or always had had, really. And uh, the head bishop uh, we began to be known as the Pope, the Papa Elder, uh, Gregory, Pope Gregory, in the year 590 A.D., finally assumed this authority. Strangely enough, on the other side of the world, we had the Greek Catholic Church, referred to as the Greek Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. They, too, had a pope, but he was called the Patriarch. And so the Patriarch and the Pope disagreed with each other. And by the way, both words mean a father-elder. They disagreed with each other. The patriarch excommunicated the pope. And the pope turned around and excommunicated the patriarch. So in a sense, they sent each other to hell. You know, that was their teaching. I don't believe that, but that's, that was their teaching. Then we find that churches always begin to take upon themselves the structure in the government of the country that they are a part of. Um, it happened. The uh, Roman Catholic Church took upon itself the structure of Rome. The Eastern Orthodox Church took upon itself the structure of the government of that part of the world. And uh, after Constantine, things really began to happen in the Roman Church. The idea was we have a lot of people that do not speak Latin. We have a lot of people that do not understand the messages. They don't know how to worship. We'll put images of so-called saints up in our church building, and they can worship through that. And so images came along. It was the year 157 A.D. when the idea of penance came along. You sin, you go to the priest. Uh, the priest says, hey, uh, you can pay for your sins by doing this. That idea is foreign to the Scripture. In the year 593, the idea of purgatory was, it, was really put forth. The idea of purgatory is that you're not good enough to go to heaven, but you're not bad enough to go to hell. And so you wait in an intermediate place to pay for your sins. But your friends and relatives, 
by giving to the church or doing certain services for the church can shorten your time in purgatory. I challenge you to find anything that would vaguely resemble that in the Bible. But after that, we had other things. Uh, they put a bowl of water out in the uh, vestibule of churches. This was a secret sign. Those that have been baptized would witness to that fact as they came in for the services by dipping their fingers in that bowl of water. That meant that they had a right to take communion. Those that had not been baptized, had not accepted Christ, just passed it by. When uh, they reached a certain point in the service, they would have a dismissal of those that had not dipped their fingers in the bowl of water. Those that had dipped their fingers in the water stayed, and they were served communion. But this evolved, and the word mass comes from the word dismissal. And that bowl of water began to have unusual attributes assigned to it, and it later became holy water. It took a century for that to develop, but that is the way that it started. Listen, you don't like hearing this. I don't always like preaching it. But you go back in history, and you can verify everything that I am saying to you this morning. In the year 1232, the Pope assumed absolute authority over the church, 1,200 years after Christ. And by the way, it wasn't until the 1880s that he was viewed as being infallible. But as you see, all of this developed over the years, contrary to Bible teaching. For instance, the church at Rome tried to evangelize Africa. Uh, they went down into the areas of Egypt and northern Africa. They had a hard time getting Christianity across. The people that lived there worshipped a god they called Osiris, and he had a mother named Isis, yes, exactly the same name as a terrorist group today, in exactly the same place. He had a mother named Isis, and she was pictured as rocking the baby god Osiris in heaven. Well, they took the uh, attributes of Isis and uh, gave them to the Virgin Mary and created Mary the mother of God and the queen of heaven, and the people of North Africa accepted the church and came in. But again, contrary to what the Bible teaches. We face this thing called baptism. Now you'll find this in church history. In the year 251, the Council of Novation. Let me tell you about Novation. Novation wasn't a Christian, but most of his family were and were in the church. Novation became very ill, and it looked like he was going to die. So they sent for the preacher. By this time, he was beginning to be known as a priest. And they sent for him, and he came, and he was to baptize Novation. But the physician said, if you immerse this man, he will probably die. So they wrapped Novation in blankets and poured eight jars of water on him. And it was said, we don't know whether this will work or not, but if you get well, come down to the church and be baptized right, because they knew nothing about baptism except immersion, the meaning of the word. Well, Novation did get well. 
And he's like a lot of we guys. He didn't have nearly as much religion when he was well as he had when he was sick. And he refused to come down to the church and be baptized because they'd already counted him as a member. So there was actually, in the known world, a council of novation with representatives of the churches coming together. Could a man be a member of the church and be counted as a Christian if he had not been scripturally baptized? The year 251. Well, they, uh, out of that council said, yes, we will have what we call clinical baptism or deathbed baptism. It can be done by pouring water on a person. However, in the year 753, the church had another council, and they said, we will give people a choice. They may be baptized by immersion, pouring, or sprinkling. And then in the year 1311 A.D., you have the Council of Ravenna, which said baptism will be by sprinkling. That was not to make it easier for the people. That was to make it easier for the priesthood. They had elaborate garments in those days, and sometimes the priests were about to get drowned in the, in the water trying to baptize somebody by immersion. So the Council of Ravenna changed the whole process of baptism contrary to what the Bible teaches. In 1109 A.D., you have indulgences. It was actually a license to sin. Many of the great cathedrals were paid for by the money brought in by indulgences. You know, uh, I've done this, it's wrong. I'll give this amount of money to the church, and I'm okay. Or I intend to do this, which is wrong, and I will give this amount of money, and it will be okay. Indulgences were rampant all over Europe. And then it wasn't until the year 1215 after Christ that we had the confessional come on the scene where you could go to the priest and confess your sins and be forgiven in that way. You know, we entered into the Dark Ages. The Bible was withheld from the people. Uh, when the Bible is withheld, Christianity or any religion will get a great deal of superstition involved in it. And all kinds of superstitions were involved in Christianity. Then came the Inquisition, the greatest mass slaughter of people in the history of the world. I hate to bring it up. Hitler got, what, four to five million in World War II? The church got 52 million in the Inquisition. Many times a man was put to death just for the simple reason that he disagreed with the village priest. It was a horrible time. And out of the Dark Ages came the Reformation or the rise of what we would call the Protestant groups. And uh, I want you to look at that with me for just a minute or two. The year was 1483. A guy named Martin Luther had been born the son of a woodsman. His father was a woodchopper, and Martin Luther knew how to win, use an axe. Martin Luther was studying for the priesthood. He had been studying for the priesthood for some time. He had never seen a Bible. 
All he read were the rituals of the church. While helping clean out an old storeroom, he found a Bible chained to an old pulpit. Being the son of a wood chopper, he found an axe and chopped it loose from the pulpit and began to read it. And he was amazed at what the New Testament taught about the church and about salvation. In the year 1517, on the eve of All Saints Day, that's Halloween, he tacked 95 theses or indictments against the church on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. They were written in Latin. He and kept, he, mean, he meant to keep all of this within the church. Uh, he, he, he wanted to reform the Roman church. But you know, somebody got those and translated them into German and printed them up and everybody in that part of the world could read German in that day. And suddenly we had an uprising. People found out that what they were being taught was not what God's Word said at all. And there began to be protesters or Protestants, as they were called. They protested this absolute authority of the Pope and the church. Now I'll give you just some little information here. Uh, one group was called the Episcopalians. A good New Testament name has to do with the church and the leadership. Uh, the Church of England came out of this, the Episcopalian movement. They were great Bible readers and they were great missionaries. And don't ever forget that the first great missionary movement in the world in the Reformation was led by the Church of England. They went everywhere. That's when you had the missionaries like Livingston, etc. Those were followed by the Presbyterians. The word Presbyterian really means the eldership. Men like John Knox, Calvin, Swinley in Switzerland, uh, they were all a part of this movement. And they too said, let's just get back to the Bible. And then you had following them, well, they taught the sovereignty of God. By the way, they originally taught the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. But they were followed by uh, the Congregational Church, 1567. Every local church ought to handle its own affairs. They didn't need some hierarchy telling them what to do. Then the Methodists came along. And um, John and Charles Wesley, a guy named George Whitfield, they taught the power of prayer and personal holiness, and they started a revival in England. It abolished child labor. Every kid around ought to be thankful for the Methodist movement. It changed politics, changed politics completely. It jumped across the Atlantic Ocean and caused the Great Awakening in the United States, and the Great Awakening was a necessity or we would not have been able to win the Revolutionary War. Yeah, we owe a lot to them, but their emphasis was on personal holiness and prayer. 
You know why they were called Methodists? Because they methodically met at 4.30 every morning to pray. That wouldn't be a bad deal again if we were that disciplined. They were followed by the Baptist in 1521 who placed an emphasis of getting back on Bible baptism. There were a lot of other things in between. I just sort of hit some of the high points. And but then suddenly we see a need not of a reformation, not of reforming the church. We see a need of restoration, completely restoring the church. And uh, that need of restoration really started. Uh, here's a little bit of information on the way that it all came about. Um, I want to give credit to the reformers, but even with all of that, things were very bad in the church world in the United States. Let me give you an example. Uh, when the Baptists went down to baptize people in the streams, the Methodists often hid by the side of the trail and threw rocks at them. The Baptists had their own way of getting back at the Methodists, too. But there's a story, real story. Guy traveling at night, caught in a severe storm, knocked at the door of a house, wanted in for shelter. They said, what church do you belong to? He said, I'm a Presbyterian. They still wouldn't let him in. They said, what branch of the Presbyterian? He said, a succeeder Presbyterian. They said, there's a person of your persuasion that lives about four miles on down the road. Christianity was that bad in our country. I'm not exaggerating. Get in your history books and read these things. It's even worse than what I brought out this morning. So suddenly in 1775, a whole bunch of things happened. A bunch of guys that saw everything the same way and they had no contact with each other. 1775, in Scotland, you had two brothers that were prominent businessmen. They were called the Howdian brothers. They had business all over the known world at that time. And these guys were great, but they started a school to teach preachers. Let's just get back to the Bible and restore the New Testament church. By the way, I've gone up three times to preach on New uh, Prince Edward Island. And uh, Prince Edward Island off the coast of Canada, small island, it has 18 or 19 rather strong churches of our brotherhood on that island. And they are very quickly t quick to tell you that they knew all about this idea of restoration movement 30 years before we found out about it in the United States. They will tell you that politely, but they will tell you that very firmly because the Haldian influence reached them before it reached the United States. And then we found out that uh, by the year 1793, there was a guy named James O'Kelly in the Carolinas. Uh, he got tired of all of this different kinds of churches. He said, why don't we get back to the Bible? Now get his name. He started what they were going to call the Republican Methodist Church. 
That was the name. But there was a guy named Rice Haggard standing around. He said, uh, why don't we forget that Republican Methodist stuff and just call ourselves Christians? They thought that was a great idea. That's the way they went. Uh, in, uh, I don't know what the date was, it was just four or five years later, there was a guy named Abner Jones, medical doctor. He was in Vermont. Uh, church lost a preacher. They asked him to preach. Highly educated for his day. He thought, well, I'll just take the Bible for what it says. And that movement began to spread. Everybody heard of Abner Jones, and when Abner Jones found out about uh, James O'Kelly in the Carolinas, they found out they believed exactly the same thing because the Bible was their only rule of faith and practice. And uh, then in 1801-1804, the greatest revival meeting that the United States has ever known took place in Cane Ridge, Kentucky on the frontier. Um, reports do not agree on how many people attended. We know that there were at least 25,000 people there at the same time. There may have been 30, 35, maybe even 40,000 people that attended part of it. Uh, the food supply just wouldn't handle that many people. The government had to send food in. It went for a month. Preaching day and night, right out of the Bible. That's where our Christian churches really came into existence, our churches of Christ. Man by the name of Barton Stone uh, led all of that, and he said, we just have to get back to the Bible, and we will call ourselves, and they argued about different names, and then suddenly this guy Rice Haggard is there. He was the one that had been in Carolina. Rice Haggard said, uh, why don't we just call ourselves Christians? And they did. And the rule of faith and practice was just the Bible only. Well, in 1807, Thomas Camel came to the United States, highly educated from Scotland. In 1809, his brother Alexander Camel came to the United States. They were... Um, businessmen. They were educators. They were great preachers. They weren't immersed in baptism until the year 1812 by a Baptist preacher by the name of uh, Luce, L-U-C-E. But their whole idea was, let's just get back to the Bible and do what the Bible says. They were scholars. They were writers. What they wrote went throughout the country. They had an evangelist named Walter Scott. Uh, Walter Scott, again, highly educated, but rode thousands of miles horseback to preach on the frontier. He would go into a small town, and he'd find where the kids met for school because they didn't always have a school building. And he'd get them aside after school, and he'd say, now you memorize this. You go home and tell your parents tonight there's a man's going to preach about faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sin, and the gift of the Holy Spirit.
Today we do this five-finger exercise, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, forgiveness of sin. But he did it differently. Faith, repentance, baptism, no confession. They looked upon baptism itself as confession of faith. And as they said, how could a man be baptized into Christ if he didn't confess he believed in Christ? But they added the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you see. Well, kids would go home and tell their parents that, and everybody would be there to hear Walter Scott. We don't even know how many churches that man planted in Ohio and Indiana and even got into our state. So it began to spread in that way. And see the differences between Reformation, reforming something, and restoration just starting over and getting back to the New Testament. Hey, look at it this way. Suppose there is a law against playing baseball, and nobody plays baseball for 50 years. And so um, 50 years from now, somebody says, uh, you know, there's a game they used to play called baseball. Said, we ought to start playing that again. So somebody says, uh, what were the rules? Well, I think a man got four strikes and three balls. And they said, well, that sounds good. And what about the distance between the bases? It, it doesn't make any difference. Have any distance you want. And so they start playing baseball, but it's a mess. And then they find the rule book. And everybody starts playing baseball by the rule book. And there is consistency and unity in the game. That illustrates what happened. I've dumped a big load on you, and I realize that. But uh, out of all this, we had some mottos. We're not the only Christians. We just want to be Christians only. You can live with that, can't you? Or how about this motto? The Bible only makes Christians only. I can't make you a b member of any denomination without taking the Bible and adding to it the creed of that denomination. Or how about this one? In faith, unity. In opinions, liberty. We have a right to opinion. In all things, love. Those were mottos that we live by. And uh, people would fight it. They said, well, we're all aiming for the same thing. Hey, I was trained as a sniper. There's a big difference in aiming and hitting it. Somebody will come along and say, well, you, you can be saved just like the thief on the cross, don't you think? And I do think you can be like the thief on the cross if you can manage to get yourself on a cross next to Jesus on the cross. And he says this day, thou shalt be with me in paradise. I think you're saved. I don't know how you're going to work that out, but go to it, brother. I want to watch. But you see, we are saved through the death of Christ, and when Jesus did forgive that guy, he had not yet died. He forgave him just like he forgave anybody when he was here personally in the flesh. And I want to give you a passage of Scripture as to why that thief on the cross stuff won't work for you. Here it is. Hebrews 9, verse 16. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force 
only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, the New Testament. He had to die to bring it into existence. He left his apostles to execute the will. And there is a structure for the church, and there is a plan of salvation. You are to hear the gospel and believe it. You are to repent by turning toward God. You are to confess your faith in Christ. You are to be baptized into Christ. And after that comes things like forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The early church met and practiced that plan of salvation and remembered Jesus in the only way ever asked to be remembered, by the Lord's Supper. And they did that every first day of the week. The things that are written aforetime are written for our learning. Finally, the prayer can be answered. See, we're not talking about union. We're talking about unity. You can tie two cats together by their tails and throw them over a clothesline and you have union, but you don't have any unity. I'll guarantee you that. We only have unity when we go to the New Testament for the church and salvation. You get the name Christian. The creed is no creed but Christ. No book but the New Testament. There is a plan of salvation. And when people go just to the Bible, they agree on things like the plan of salvation, the Lord's Supper, and what the church should do. And out of this, the restoration movement, and we are a part of it. I have already gone five minutes more than I asked for. And I don't care because I'm going to give you something else. S statistics on surveys lag sometimes a year or two. But a recent survey taken among churches three years ago listed our Christian churches, Churches of Christ, as the fastest growing group in the United States, even ahead of the Mormons, and we'll just drop it there. That survey showed that we were third in the number of missionaries supported worldwide, but we are really second because the group that was listed second counts short-term missionaries, people that just go over for a few weeks, we count only full-time missionaries. We have more megachurches, more churches over 1,000 and 1,500 in proportion to the number of congregations than any other group in the United States. Now, don't misinterpret that. The Baptists have more, but they have many more congregations. A magazine that preachers read called Rev started an article off this way last year. You want to be the preacher of a megachurch? Maybe you'd better look at the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ. There must be something in their water, he said, that makes them grow. We are being looked at as the leaders in church planting. And we have the, one of the largest organizations in the country for the starting and financing of new churches. 
Why would I break in and tell you that? To show you that this idea of restoration works. And you are a part of something big, and it's a part, you are a part of something that is growing, and don't ever give up on it. Army regiments and Marine Corps regiments for many years had their own flag. Of course, they, they were under the flag of the country, but they had their own regimental flag, and it was called the Regimental Standard. They tell the story in one war of this group of men, and they were fighting and in battle, and the standard bearer got clear out in front of them and was pinned down. Captain of a company yelled at him and said, bring the standard back to the men. He thought for a minute and he called back, bring the men up to the standard. The men thought that wasn't a bad idea and they charged and won the battle. I'm just saying, let's bring the church up to the standard, not bring the standard down to the church. Let's pray. Father, I hope people see the difference between restoration and reformation and see what we're trying to do as a brotherhood. And I pray that as we are a unity movement among the churches, that unity will help the world believe that Jesus is the Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.